Psalm 107, we'll notice there are some repeated refrains uh, in this psalm, particularly uh, we'll see uh, two refrains repeated twice, uh, one being uh, Psalm 107, if you look down in verse 8, it declares, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. And we'll see that refrain, refrain repeated four times in the psalm, bringing us back to this reality of that we ought to have gratitude unto the Lord, that we ought to give thanks. It's almost as if you can sense there's sort of this, um, you know, kind of almost this pleading that men would take the time to give proper thanks to the Lord, to be grateful to him. And he's going to mention numbers of different reasons why for that. But the predominant reason, if you look back up in verse 6, and this is the other statement that we'll see repeated four times as well in this psalm, it says, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. So this seems to be the main reason that the psalmist is saying that, Oh, that men should definitely give thanks to the Lord, because so many times in our lives, When we are, as he says there, verse 6, in trouble, that we can cry out to the Lord and that he intervenes, he steps into our story, he intervenes into our situation, and he delivers us out of the distressing things that we're going through. And that happens in lots of different ways, but how wonderful it is that God is a great deliverer and that he does intervene, that when we cry out to him as his children— that he answers, that he acts, that he has power to come in and to bring great deliverance, to set us free from things that we are going through. And that really seems to be the emphasis that the psalmist is trying to draw to our attention here. You'll notice that Psalm 107 begins what's called Book 5 of the Psalms here. This is the fifth and final book uh, of the, the, the Psalms, and it will take us all the way through to the remainder of Psalm 150. But he begins verse one by simply saying, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of the lands from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. So the psalmist begins again, kind of, with this longing sigh, again, there's this repeated, oh, that men would give thanks unto the Lord. And here he begins right away, instead of expressing what we saw down in verse eight, that repetitious refrain, here he goes right into a reason why we should always give thanks to the Lord. The first thing he mentions there in verse one, very simply, because he is good. That he's good. That is in his very nature, God is always good. The Bible tells us in James chapter one that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the father of lights with whom there is no shadow of turning. And the idea there is reminding us that every good thing that comes into our life, every perfect and wonderful thing that comes into our life comes down from a good heavenly father who, who never changes. With him, there's no shadow of turning. God never alters. He never deviates. His goodness is a consistent thing. 
And that's something that we can always be reliant upon. Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father, the idea is in in contrast, how much more will he give good gifts to those of us who he loves as his children? And again, the Bible repeatedly reminds us of this very thing that our God, our Lord, is indeed good and, and that we can rely upon that, that he never has a bad day. He never has a bad week or a bad season. He never changes. He doesn't have mood shifts. He doesn't have times when he's good to us, when we're behaving good. And then when we're behaving bad, that he's bad to us. God is constantly good in his nature. And that's a wonderful thing. Certainly God's nature, all of it, the Bible says that God changes not. He's immutable, means he never changes. And to know that part of God's nature is that he is good and benevolent in who he is in his very nature is a wonderful thing because people aren't always good. Have you noticed that a little bit? I mean, at least <laughs> we know that about ourselves. Paul himself says, even as a very godly man, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. And Paul said that almost 30 years into his Christian walk and his ministry. He said, I know, here's one thing I found out about myself in me, in my flesh and who I am naturally, there's nothing good in me. Anything good that comes out of my life is ultimately of the goodness of God that he's put into my life. And sometimes not just us and not just each other, we find people aren't always good, but sometimes just life in and of itself on the earth, it's not always good, right? We don't always have good days. Sometimes we have bad days. Uh, seasons aren't always good. Sometimes we go through really bad seasons and difficult times and hardships and life's not always good. But the wonderful thing is in the midst of all those things, though we're not always good, though others aren't always good, though life isn't always good, that we can always rest assured that God remains good and that the Lord is good and we can rest in that. We can rely upon his goodness to us. And so the psalmist says that is something that we should be sincerely thankful for, just to be thankful that our Lord is good. And because he is good, that's why he says, verse one, his mercy endures forever. It doesn't just endure. He says it endures forever, forever and ever. God will continue to have that merciful kindness towards us, showing restraint towards our failures and our weaknesses, being mercifully loving and compassionate towards us as well, just in our frailty, that mercy of God towards us, it just endures forever. And he says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. And he mentions there from the east and the west and the north and the south, from all different directions, from all different situations, Right? The idea there is, is spanning the globe. You know, Some came from this direction, some from that direction. But, but the bottom line is, though all of our lives have a little bit different story and where their origin was or maybe what the prior destination was before the Lord worked in our life, the bottom line was no matter who we are and where you were in life or where I once was in life, might have been different for all of us, but one thing we all needed was the redemptive work of the Lord. We needed the Lord to redeem us out of the misery, out of the mess, out of the sinful condition that we are all in from birth. And we just kind of walk that out and make our different destinations and messes as the result of doing the things that we do in different ways. 
and ultimately we become the redeemed of the Lord. And again, that word redeemed is that term that speaks of to buy something back with a purchase price out of slavery. Slaves were redeemed from the slave trade block by someone paying a price to basically purchase them to liberate them and to take them under their authority. And this is what the Lord has done for us. Jesus has redeemed us with the purchase price price of his blood. And God, so many times you see him providing redemption and deliverance for his people, the nation of Israel. God redeemed them out of their slavery in Egypt. And Jesus has redeemed us, not just from our earthly enemies, but he's redeemed us, verse two says, literally from the hand of the enemy. And that's kind of the, 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 the wonderful reality is that we realize that at one time, the reason why we were enslaved was because we were not under the power and the authority of the Lord. And that is what the Bible teaches. We often don't want to accept that reality mentally, but Jesus himself says at one time before we were saved, that we were of our father, the devil. Jesus speaks about him as someone who is the God of this age, the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air. The idea is someone who has authority and control over our life spiritually. And we may not have realized that we were under the grip of the enemy. And that was why we were enslaved to whatever things we were enslaved to. But the wonderful thing is, is that he says we've been redeemed from the hand of the enemy. And that's one of the wonderful things about being in relationship with Jesus Christ and a spiritual truth we need to live out and understand. My life is not under the control of the enemy anymore. He may hassle me. He may try and stumble me. He may try and re get a grip on me again, but I've been redeemed from the hand of the enemy. And so I should not live in a way whereby I'm submitting to the will of my enemy because I've been redeemed from the hand of the enemy. He has no control over me anymore. He may try and regain control, but Jesus has set me free. And what a wonderful thing to know that and that we would be grateful that the Lord's done that by redeeming us from the hand of the enemy and be thankful to the Lord for that. Now, verse four, he begins to describe some of the reasons he's going to come to that men would need to give thanks to the Lord for his goodness. Verse four, he says that they wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in. So this kind of picture is just aimless wandering. They were wandering around, he says, the wilderness in a desolate way, finding nowhere to dwell or to settle in. And Certainly that pictures what all of our lives to some degree were like spiritually. We were wandering around. We were aimless before we had real purpose in knowing God and serving him. He says they were hungry and thirsty and their soul fainted in them. And then there's that refrain that repeats itself again and again. Though they were wandering, aimless, hungry and thirsty, fainting, then in that condition, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them out of their distresses. God's people cried out to him. They begged the Lord for deliverance. They realized that they were in trouble. They realized they weren't going to get out of their trouble, that they couldn't satisfy themselves. They were hungry and thirsty. And they realized there was no way they were finding satisfaction. They were fainting. They were wandering. They were lost. And in that condition, they cried out to the Lord and he intervened in his loving kindness and his great power, and he delivered them out of their distresses in that situation, even as he has done for all of us. Verse seven, and then he led them, after he delivered them out of their distresses, he then led them forth by notice the right way. Prior to this, 
they were going the wrong way. In fact, they didn't even have a way. Remember, he says up in the prior verse, they were wandering around the desert. <laughs> they weren't even just going the wrong way. They completely lost their way. They were just living aimless, and they had no sense of direction. And now God is leading them forth by the right way that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. That is, now he's given them purpose. They now have direction. They have guidance. God's making things different in their life. And he says, in light of that, verse 8, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men, for he satisfies the longing soul and he fills the hungry soul with goodness. So again, oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord. He's going to say it again and again. And perhaps the reason why the Holy Spirit is repetitious is because it's something that we need to hear again and again and again. Because if there's anything that we all struggle with as human beings is gratitude, is gratitude. By nature, we are not naturally grateful, thankful, appreciative people. Instead, we're usually, quite honestly, kind of defaulting towards the opposite. Complaining about this, unhappy with that, dissatisfied, grumbling over this, unappreciative, ungrateful. I mean, that's why we teach our kids to be grateful because they're not naturally grateful. And some of us, honestly, we just kind of never grow out of that. And we struggle with that area of our childish immaturity our whole lives long. And so God has to remind us, the word of God has to call us to this awareness, oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness, that we would realize the goodness of God and give him thanks as we often should for his wonderful works that he does in our lives. And even he says, verse nine, how he satisfies us filling the hungry soul with his goodness. How, how wonderful that God satisfies us. Because one of the biggest problems in all of our lives as human beings is we are so dissatisfied, right? People are empty and we struggle. And that's why before we came to the Lord, we tried everything to our awareness under the sun to fill that hungry dissatisfaction within us. And so we may try the coping mechanism of drugs or alcohol or relationships with this person or a relationship with that person or all the different things we can explore. And we drink from all these different wells. And the reason why is, is we're hungry and we're thirsty and we're dissatisfied and we're trying to find something to fulfill us because we want to be satisfied. And though we try everything under the sun, money and power and position, and we try all these things and, and we constantly keep realizing there's this gnawing dissatisfaction within us. And the reason why is because the Bible says in Romans 8 that there's a God-shaped void that we're all created with. And, and, and you can't put a square peg in a round hole and you can't fill the God-shaped need and void in your life with anything other than God, than a meaningful experience with God. And many times we don't even realize that's why we're so dissatisfied until ultimately we come to that awareness. We just go through life in some ways in blindness and ignorance and wondering why am I so dissatisfied, right? Wasn't it Mick Jagger saying, I can't get no satisfaction, but I tried and I tried and I tried and I still can't get no satisfaction, right? And, and we all to some degree did that until the time when we finally met the Lord and we realized that Jesus truly is the bread of life. And this hunger for God that's in us finally starts to become satisfied. 
and this thirst to drink from something that will quench our thirst and give us a degree of fulfillment finally gets satisfied when we drink from the living waters of Jesus because it is truly a deep spiritual inward hunger and thirst that only he can satisfy. And he says, but yet he does that. And we should be thankful. Lord, you satisfy the, the longing soul. He satisfies us. Now, verse 10 downward, he starts to speak about how we should give thanks to the Lord for his powerful works of deliverance out of bondage and slavery and the misery that we often bring upon ourselves, where we find ourselves afflicted because of our sinful wrongdoing. He says in verse 10, those who sat in darkness in the shadow of death, bound in affliction and iron. So here the picture is someone sitting like in a dungeon in the shadow of death. Notice they're bound in affliction and irons. They're in prison. They're in prison. They're miserable. And why? Verse 11, not because someone else has done this to him, but he says, verse 11, the reason why they're sitting in darkness and they're bound in affliction, pain, and irons is because they have rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. There's the reason. And, and sadly, we as human beings have this way of enslaving ourselves, of creating self-inflicted trials. Jesus said that he who sins becomes a slave to sin. Jesus says that one of the biggest plagues of sin and committing sin is its enslaving power, is that when we sin, we only further enslave ourselves to that sin. So we're not doing anything of benefit to ourselves to give into our flesh in any way at any time. And the more we do it, all we do is create greater opportunity to become more in bondage, more enslaved, where we find ourselves, sadly, sometimes as human beings, literally sitting in a dark place, and we're literally prisoners to our own sinful conditions or our own sinful wrongdoing, and we find ourselves imprisoned and in affliction and irons, and we feel like we're stuck, right? A person's stuck in a life-dominating sin, or they're stuck in a sinful condition, and it's a miserable place to be, and God says... The reason for it, and I tell you, it's important to see the reason because you'll never get out of it until you see the reason. When you want to be set free from your own enslavement, you have to realize that part of the reason you are enslaved is that you created that situation yourself because that's what makes you become desperate and cry out to the Lord in humble you know, you know, pleading for deliverance because you recognize I've enslaved myself. By my own decisions, he says here, it's because they rebelled against the words of God. God's people knew what those scriptures said, and yet they rebelled against it. They transgressed. It was conscious disobedience. God said, this is the line. Don't step over the line. Rebellion is conscious disobedience. It's not, oh, I slipped in a moment of weakness. It's knowing what is wrong and still consciously rebelling against that for some selfish pursuit and he says they rebelled against the word of God and they despised the counsel of the most high. And so when God gives us his word and he gives us counsel and we despise counsel, godly counsel, and we hear it and then we just kind of dismiss it, 
and go on and transgress anyway or rebel against the word of God, the scripture cautions us that this is what's going to happen. We're going to find ourselves in affliction and enslaved and in a dark and a miserable place that we create because Jesus said when we do such, we just enslave ourselves to sin. And God's people had done that. He says, verse 12, therefore, notice he brought down their heart with labor. Notice it began to be hard. Life started getting difficult and God's bringing his people down with labor. What's God doing? He's grinding on his people. He's making life harder. Now life is becoming a labor. And when we find ourselves enslaved to sin or in a dark place spiritually that we should not be, life just does it. It becomes like a labor. It becomes more exhausting. It becomes more difficult because then there's all the consequential effects of having to strive and work much harder to keep ourselves going because we're under the weight of guilt and, and the darkness of the things going on. Notice he says they fell down and there was none to help. So the picture here is kind of falling down in a helpless condition. But notice, because God let the weight of their wrongdoing kind of grind them down personally, it resulted in what? Desperation. Good desperation. It resulted in desperation that led to genuine godly sorrow and brokenness. Because verse 13, here's our word. Here's our, our statement again, second time. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them out of their distresses. Notice, they were in trouble, enslaved to their sin. They were distressed. The only thing they were going to do to get out of that situation was to ask somebody to come and to set them free because there's no way they were breaking the chains themselves. And the same is true spiritually. Genuine deliverance spiritually from sin or anything we become enslaved by ultimately only comes from the power of the Lord Jesus Christ setting us free. Because remember, Jesus said, if you sin, you become enslaved to sin. But Jesus said, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And he also said in that same chapter, and if the Son sets you free, then you shall be free indeed. And so there comes that place where we realize, Lord, I cannot even set myself free from this. I enslaved myself to it, but I can't get myself out of it. So, Lord, I need you to powerfully intervene. Lord, I need you to set me free from this dark place, from this thing that's become a, just a bondage and a control that's imprisoned me in my life. Lord, set me free. And the wonderful thing, when they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, he saved them out of their distresses. And the Lord's willing to do the exact same thing for us, to save us out of those distressing situations if we simply and sincerely cry out to the Lord in our trouble when this comes into our lives in different ways. Verse uh, 14, he tells us that. Verse 15, he then comes back to this same idea that he brought them out of darkness, the shadow of death. And notice verse 14, broke their chains in pieces. Who broke the chains? God did. And who can break the chains in people's lives? Only God can, but he's a wonderful chain breaker. But interesting, the Bible very clearly paints that picture like breaking chains to set people free when they need to be delivered. Oh, in light of that, verse 15, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness. Why? Because that's awful nice and good of God to deliver us when we enslave ourselves, isn't it? I mean, I mean God could very, well, hey, you made your bed, lie in it, right? So we tell people something, you made your own bed, lie in that. Well, you, you got yourself thrown in the jail, so you're gonna have to, and, and God's heart is, it says that he comes in 
and he's good to us even in our worst times and his wonderful works to the children of men. And one of his wonderful works to the children of men is verse 16, that he's broken the gates of, of bronze and cut the bars of iron in two. One of the wonderful works of God to the children of men is deliverance, is to set people free from things they're in prison to and they've become enslaved to. Verse 17, he then goes on to say, fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities were afflicted. So notice he uses two words here. Transgression speaks of conscious disobedience. Again, this isn't making a mistake. Iniquity speaks of being bent or perverse. So he says, because of their bent, perverse nature and their iniquities, it causes people to transgress. And when we do that, when we transgress and we go after our perverse nature instead of the spirit, he says, it does what? Verse 17, it brings into our life affliction. So he says, fools afflict themselves because of their own transgressions, and then their soul abhorred all manner of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. That is, they became so miserable, so unhappy, that literally their soul just abhorred life. It it abhorred the everyday things of life. And what did they do in their situation? Here it is again, verse 19. And then they cried out to the Lord. In their trouble. And he saved them out of their distresses. I love verse 20. I have it circled here. It says, and he sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. I like that little statement there, verse 20. One of the ways that God brings deliverance and that God brings help and healing, it says that God sent his word and healed them. The word of God, the spoken voice of God, God sends forth his word and it can bring incredible healing in people's lives. It's also what can bring deliverance from people who are on a path of destruction. And how wonderful to take the word of God and to let it have that healing effect in our life. You know, there is nothing more powerful. And that's why Jesus said that then if you know the truth and you abide in the truth, you respond to the truth, it will set you free. The truth of God's word has such a powerful effect to heal backsliding hearts, to heal people who are just in a broken condition and bring great deliverance. God sends his word. He heals. He delivers people from destructions. And therefore, verse 21, as if we haven't heard it already, oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and his wonderful works to the children of men. And then he tells us, it seems verse 22, One of the ways that we can do that, let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. So one of the ways that we can give thanks to the Lord, he says, is just like they would bring an animal sacrifice to the altar. He says, sometimes all God's looking for is just a sacrifice of thanksgiving, that we would be so utterly grateful to the Lord and that we would rejoice in his wonderful works of powerful deliverance and setting us free. Lord, I'm so thankful you set me free, Lord, from that sin or from that lifestyle or from that dark place I was in of, you know, just maybe being enslaved to even depression or to just some, you know, horrible thing that I had gotten myself involved in. And Lord, you set me free from that. Lord, you came in, you delivered me. And to just be able to express to God through our words and our prayers 
and even the sacrifice of our praises being lifted up to the Lord, declaring that with great thankfulness and joy. He says, verse 23, those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, that they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. Verse 25, for he commands the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. So now he pictures here just the idea of God in his creative power, controlling even nature. And at times, one of the ways God will sometimes even bring things to our attention or get our attention is he will sometimes let us progress through the storms of life. And here he says, God commands the sea. He raises up the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens and they go down again to the depths and their soul, he says, verse 26, when they're in the storm melts because of trouble and people, here's the idea here. They reel to and fro and they stagger like a drunken man and they are at their wits end. Oh, that came from the Bible. Lots of things come from the Bible. I feel like I'm at my wits end. God understands that. That was God's one who described that very thing. Here the picture is how God will create a storm and allow a storm to bring people even sometimes to their wits end so that they may actually come to their senses ultimately. This reminds me as I read this here of exactly what happened. Remember in the book of Jonah? Isn't that exactly what happened? God told Jonah to go to Nineveh to to preach to the people there. Jonah hated the people of Nineveh. He despised them because of how wicked and cruel they were to him and to his own people. And Jonah was a patriot. And Jonah's biggest mistake, honestly, is he became too much of a patriot than he did a follower of God. And I tell you, the spirit of patriotism can quench the Holy Spirit. So be very careful of that, even in our own country. Sometimes people are more enthusiastic about being an American patriot than they are being a Christian. And, and we serve the kingdom of God before we serve the country of the United States. And look, I love my country. Don't get me wrong. I've become way more patriotic the older I get. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But Jonah's problem was he was so much of a patriot. He was disobeying what God wanted to go on in his own life. And Jonah, remember, was told, go share with those people. I want to see them come to repentance. And Jonah was so angry. And remember, he got on a boat and he said, that's it. He looked for a way to get away from that, got on a ship, tried to sail the opposite direction to Tarshish. And what did God do? God did exactly what's described right here in verse 25. God commanded, he says, and raised up the stormy wind, which the waves of the sea, they mount up to the heavens and God created a storm, right? And Jonah found himself in the midst of a storm because he was trying to disobey God. And it was a storm of correction. There's all different types of storms. Sometimes there's a storm of direction. God just lets a storm come and it directs us to where God wants us to go. Paul experienced that in Acts 27, where God allowed a storm to happen, but ultimately it got Paul to shipwreck on a particular island because there was ministry that God wanted to do there. That was a storm of direction. Some storms are storms of perfection, where God perfects our faith. The disciples went through that a few times, where Jesus would say, let's go to the other side. They'd get into the boat, and then all of a sudden, as they're right in the center of the will of God in the center of the Sea of Galilee, God let a horrible storm come, and they're struggling, and it seems like they're going to drown. And Jesus was using all that to perfect and to strengthen their faith. They had done nothing wrong. They were right in the center of the will of God, and they were in a horrible storm. Horrible storm. 
But they weren't in a storm because God was upset. They were in the center of God's will. Jesus said, get in the boat, go to the other side. And sometimes we get in the boat and we're doing what God tells us to do. And we find stormy waters as we're on the path that God sends us to go on. And sometimes it's just something God uses as a part of a process to strengthen our faith, to reveal who he is to us, his power. They saw Jesus's great power in the midst of the storm. But sometimes storms are storms of correction. And so we have to step back and think sometimes, okay, I'm in a storm. Am I consciously aware, like Jonah, that I've clearly disobeyed the Lord? Or I've done something knowingly wrong and God's using a storm and he's agitating the waters and the winds are blowing contrary against me because I'm living in disobedience or I'm in rebellion in some way. And see, God loves us so much. God was willing to cause Jonah to get into a horrific storm as the result of his disobedience because God wanted to do what? Correct Jonah, get his attitude and his heart back on track and ultimately to get him back on to the path of the will of God because as he gets tossed overboard, God creates the fish, swallows him up, right? And vomits him right back out. And there you go, Jonah. Wasn't the ride I intended for you, but if that's the ride you wanted to take, you know, and God loves us enough to do that. And we should be thankful that he loves us enough that he will actually at times create messy, hard, difficult storms to just correct us when we are in a place where we should not be spiritually to where we find ourselves, verse 27, reeling to and fro, and we literally at our wits end. And God says, finally, I've been waiting to you to get to your wits end because now you'll bow the knee and maybe you're willing to submit to me. And sometimes God will take us to that place. And, you know, sometimes we find ourselves literally being brought to our wits end. And, you know, I've always loved that little phrase there, because if it's not a storm we create just generally in life, sometimes, you know, life can get hard, right? And you find yourself at your wits end, literally. But what do we do, whether it's a storm we created by the wrong things we've done or we are just at our wits end from any storm we find ourselves in that's just got us spinning in circles and dizzy and struggling. What do we do? Verse 28, there it is. Then when they were at their wits end in a hard storm, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Boy, does that not speak very prophetically of exactly what we see Jesus do in the New Testament, right? How many times that we'd see that where Jesus would let them go out in a storm and he would speak to the wind and the waves and literally everything would go calm. And to know that even when we are in storms, whether it's a storm that's just a part of the process of walking through the will of God, or if it's a storm that we have created from our own wrong decisions or disobedient actions or whatever it may be, that the only one who can stop calm the storm is God. And to know that he has that kind of power, that he can calm the storm, he can cause the waves to settle down. He says, verse 30, and then they are glad. And when you're reeling around like a drunken man on a boat, sick and at your wit's end, I've never been in that spot, but I don't like being out on the water. I've only tried it twice, and both times it did not end well. I was at my wit's end and my gut's end both times. Two times is enough to get me to tell me it's not right for me. But they were glad. And, you know, you're seasick, you're glad. Get me out of the water. I'm done being in a storm. Glad because they are quiet. Verse 30, so he guides them to their desired haven. Interesting, even when they're doing what's wrong, God says, 
you don't know where you want to go, but I know right where you really need to go. And it says he, he graciously guides them to their desired haven. And how wonderful that the Lord guides our lives. And sometimes he in his graciousness does whatever it takes, even through the storms, to guide us to our desired haven. He brings us to that right destination that meets our desire and is the desired haven, the resting spot that he's leading us into. Verse 31, oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and praise him in the company of the elders. And then verse 33, down through the next few verses, he speaks about how God's power is able to reverse things that he wants to take in the opposite direction from where they're going. And you'll, and you'll notice the contrast here. But he speaks here of how something can be a certain way, and at God's decision, he can reverse something very quickly. Look what he says, verse 33 and verse 34. God turns the rivers into a wilderness, and the water springs into dry ground, a fruitful land into barrenness. For, here's the reason, for the wickedness of those who dwell in it. So when mankind is doing what's wicked, or when people are doing something that's not in alignment with the will of God, at any moment, something that can be incredibly noticed, verse 34, fruitful, God can make it go completely barren. Something that may be like a river of water with fresh water springs, God can dry something up whenever he wants to. And if God deems that is the best thing to do in accordance with his will or what's going on, he has no problem saying, you know what, that's been very fruitful, but I'm going to have to make that dry up. I'm going to have to intervene because it would not be good for that to keep prospering and bearing fruit. And God can dry something up. God can cause something instantaneously that was fruitful to go barren if that is what is in the best interest of his will and plan and really in the best interest of all those involved. So he can reverse something. doesn't matter how great something's going. God can put an end to something and dry it up real quick. Now, the other side of that, look what he then goes on to say, verse 35. Here's a contrast. He also turns the wilderness. Now we're starting out really bad. We're starting in a dry, barren place. He turns a wilderness into pools of water and dry land into water springs. So God can reverse things the other way. Oh, it seems like there's no fruitfulness. This is barren. Nothing's going anywhere. It's dry. It's hard. It's difficult. And God can bless something and cause it to prosper and to flourish at any given moment. And then he makes the hungry, or excuse me, there he makes the hungry dwell, that they may establish a city for a dwelling place and sow fields and plant vineyards that they may yield a fruitful harvest. So that which was barren and there was nothing there, God causes it to begin to yield in a very fruitful, abundant way and blessing and prosperity starts to come. See what he says, verse 38? He also blesses them and they multiply greatly and he does not let their cattle decrease. So God can take something that seems like it is failing, it is dying, it is dry and unfruitful, and at any given moment, God can just turn the switch and the spirit of, of the Lord begins to work in a way where it starts to flourish and to prosper, and he begins to bless and multiplication and fruitfulness 
starts to happen. And again, what a a good reminder. God can reverse things either way at any time he wants. So so don't count on something being successful and God can't stop it because God can stop success and God can take absolute failure and turn it into incredible success if he wants to at his prerogative in accordance with his plans. Verse 39, and when they are diminished and brought low, the idea is God brings them low in humility through oppression and affliction and sorrow. And often that would happen to God's people, the children of Israel, and they would turn away from him. God would let them be conquered by their enemies, right? They'd be oppressed by enemies around them and they'd be afflicted and be in great sorrow. And he pours contempt on princes And he causes them to wander in the wilderness where there is no way. Yet he sets the poor on high, far from affliction. So he lifts up the lowly and he makes their families like a flock. Verse 42, and the righteous see this and rejoice and all iniquity stops its mouth. So God here turns things around the righteous get to witness God dealing with the unrighteous and those who are causing trouble and iniquity, causing problems. Notice the iniquity stops its mouth. Boy, I like that too. The picture there is that God can take somebody whose mouth is speaking iniquity and shut it. And I like that idea. You know, sometimes I want to do God's work for him, but sometimes, Lord, it's much better if you shut someone's mouth than I do. But God's able to do that. And sometimes that becomes that area where, as we've talked about on Sunday mornings, you know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, this idea of not using carnal weapons, but the weapons of our warfare are things like prayer and the word of God and knowing that God is able to bring down strongholds. God's able to shut up arguments that run contrary to what is righteous and good and healthy and and to know that God can cause all iniquity to, to stop and to shut its mouth. In verse 43, he concludes our psalm saying, whoever is wise will observe these things and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. Notice, whoever is wise. To be wise means to live well. Knowledge is facts and information. Wisdom is living properly according to what you know. Because fools can know a whole lot of stuff, right? We all know very educated fools. True? Lots of us, we know people who, they can be very smart, very educated. The Bible even says, well, God says it. Professing to be fools or professing to be wise, they become fools. And there are people who can be incredibly educated. They have lots of knowledge, but yet they live very foolishly because wisdom is living right. It's, it's the proper application of understanding and information that you possess. So a person can be very uneducated and live very wisely. They can live well and they can live out their life in a, in a good way. And he says, whoever is wise, God says, will observe these things. What things? The last 42 verses. So God says, if you want to be wise, then observe what I've just said in the last 42 verses. Well, God said a lot in the last 42 verses, But there are two things, two things that he said, what? Four times. So even if we just did that to start on a path of wisdom, what are the two things that God has said four times repetitiously? Well, the one thing that he said is 
that we should cry out to the Lord in our trouble and know that he can bring us out of our distresses. So when you're in trouble, cry out to the Lord and know that he can bring you out of that distressing, troublesome situation. What's the other thing God repeated four different times? Verse 31, oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and his wonderful works to the children of men. Whoever's wise will observe these things. The idea is being a doer of the word, putting these things into practice, not just saying, yeah, that's an interesting Bible truth. No, we learn the word of God. Why? To live the word of God. And if all we fall into by default is being nothing other than Bible scholars rather than obedient sons and daughters to the word of God, we're missing the whole point. If what we do when we come together to the church, and and, and I'm thankful to be a part of a, a ministry that puts great emphasis upon the word of God, but if all we do is make this become when we assemble just an academic exercise that we just get more knowledge and, and we nod our heads at Bible truths and we quote Bible truths and we, and we have a bunch of, but we don't live out the word of God, we're, we're starting to become very foolish because James speaks specifically to that, right? About being a hearer of the word and not being a doer of the word. And he says, when we hear the word and we don't put it into practice, we're not saying, all right, Lord, I'm going to live that out. I'm going to walk that out. I'm going to put it into application. When we don't do that, he says, we're deceiving ourselves. And that's where we start to become foolish. So he says, whoever's wise will observe, put into practice these things. And notice the benefit. If you observe the word of God, he says, they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. That is, God gives greater revelation. As, as, as we do what we know, then we start to know what we're supposed to do. And those two things always go hand in hand. That when you do what's right, God gives greater revelation. And he says, we will become more wise as we observe these things. And then we will begin to understand to deeper degrees the loving kindness of the Lord. I don't know about you. I'd like to learn a little bit more. And I'd like to understand a little more about the loving kindness of the Lord. And he says, as we simply follow these things, obediently putting them into practice, God will let us understand more and more of his loving kindness. Let's stand together.